So I'll kick off by introducing Rebecca Brown. Rebecca, uh, I've known Rebecca for many years, actually. Um, great to see you, great to have you. Thanks for uh, agreeing to participate in our webinar. So Rebecca studied French and German at Oxford University, and she completed her doctorate in German literature in 2006. And the resulting monograph, Constructing Authorship in the Work of Günter Grass, was published by Oxford University Press in 2008. She's currently Professor of Modern Languages and Creative Futures, that's quite some title, uh, at the University of Lancaster. And her research focuses on world authorship, literary prizes, celebrification, uh, German literature in a transnational context, and uh, the literary industry, more generally speaking. So I have to admit somebody here. And she is one of the um, editors of German Life and Letters, a journal uh, uh, in which we have all, well, all journalists among, amongst us, have published and continue to publish a leading journal of German studies uh, in the Anglophone world. Rebecca is also co-editor with Ben Schofield of a forthcoming volume, Transnational German Studies, which will appear with Liverpool University Press in 2020. And she is co-editor of a volume on world authorship um, with uh, uh, Thomas Boos and Emily Spears, uh, uh, which will come out or has come out with- Will come out in September. Has come out, exactly, did come out in September 2019 with Oxford University Press. So, Rebecca, we are delighted that you're here and that you will talk to us today about when is the nation and where is the human for provocations. I'm handing over to you and thanks again for uh, contributing to our webinar. Thank you so much. And um, yes, thanks for inviting me. It's, uh, it's been a really interesting morning so far and I'm looking forward to, to learning more. So, so my talk is going to be um, perhaps a little bit more practice focused than, than some of the, the talks we heard earlier. Um, I took my cue from, from Joe actually, who uh, asked, was, was interested in transnational German studies and said it would be interesting to hear um, some thoughts on that. So I'm kind of taking the experience of editing um, we're putting, putting together a project that sets out to look at the transnational in all, all sorts of different ways and reflecting on that, reflecting on what I've learned about what I think the transnational is um, at the end of that, uh, that experience. And I, in fact, signed off on the index yesterday, so it's very much um, at the fore of my mind. So trans the Transnational German Studies is part of the Transnational Modern Languages series, which has been initiated um, by a number of people, in particular Charles Burdett, uh, who's at Durham University and had a, a large grant to look at uh, tra uh, transnationalizing Italian uh, studies, I guess. Um, and he kind of put together this whole idea of looking at modern languages and this idea of looking at um, nations from outside or beyond or in different places to where one usually looks for, uh, for, for nations that are the subject of our, of our different language areas. Um, so it's turned into a whole series with Liverpool University Press where there's one handbook think, looking at transnationalizing modern languages, what that means in terms of concepts and ideas. And then we have the different language volumes and the German, transnational German studies is one of those. 
We've been given a reasonable amount of leeway to do what we want within that general structure, um, but we do all have four parts to our volume. And I was going to share with you the table of contents for it, which I think I can hopefully do by just plopping it in the chat. Will that work? Um, can, I, can I just pop it into the chat, do you think? So you'll just have to take for my take my word that there are uh, four, eight, four, four sections and we've got four chapters in each looking at what transnational German studies might mean. And I'll talk you through um, how we've gone about this then. So when we were first approached um, about the, the TML series, Ben and I were very wary of simply equating the transnational with globalization or indeed um, cosmopolitanism as it tends to get taken in, um, in quite a kind of presentist form. I used the term a little differently to how Anna meant it, um, what I suppose we mean forgetting about the past and tending to think that we're in a particular moment in the present going into the future, um, but large, largely dispensing with earlier forms um, that, that might be relevant. So we were particularly allergic to this tendency towards presentism and arguments about increased connectivity and speed defining the 21st century. We thought that that was a bit of a reductive way of thinking about um, what, what it might mean to have a transnational approach to German studies. So as our point of departure, we decided to interrogate both the trans and the national of transnational. We took literally the idea of trans meaning across, through, between, before and beyond as we thought through what all these different nuances would mean for trying to catch a discrete subject of study that's traditionally been seen as bound to a relatively confined space and affiliated linguistic community. So we were really keen to sort of bring out, well, what is German studies when you're not just looking at the obvious Germany, Austria, Switzerland, um, where can that take you? And if you look at it at different time periods, what happens? We use Germany's difficulty with the question of nation as a way of going right back. So Germany only sort of really officially becomes a nation state, obviously in 1871. Um, we wanted to go right back to find the transnational um, before, during and beyond the national. This was particularly one of Ben's ideas that, you know, perhaps the transnational can come before the nation state, as well as somehow questioning and unpicking it uh, and being what, what comes after. Uh, and we also um, asked not just where is German, but when is German? And that was the starting point of, of this talk, of course. When is that nation? Uh, and we asked ourselves repeatedly why anybody whose job isn't directly to research German studies should care. Uh, so we really had a sense, we do actually also have to think about why does any of this matter anyway? So by doing this, we found ourselves applying three lenses to the question. Oh, fantastic, well done, and you're better than I am. <laughs> um, three lenses to the question, what is German studies? And the lenses are the transperiod, the translational, and the transdisciplinary. And all of these, I think, can bear on the humanities more broadly. So I've used them to structure my talk in thinking about what does it mean to do uh, transnational humanities. So the, tr the transnationalist transperiod, first of all, going back in time before the nation state and adopting a transperiod take on our subject of study means being really open to what we class as relevant objects of study. So not just the history of the German language and literature, which is sort of the obvious starting point for anybody working in modern languages, but looking at uh, the history of religious practices, major trade routes, so the Hanse, Hanseatic League is particularly important um, in pre-modern times in Germany, 
gendered social practices and how you can find them in um, when you go back into the historical archives, material objects from churches to printing presses. Um, all of these are fantastically interesting and part of uh, German culture in all sorts of ways, going right back into uh, early modern and, and medieval times. And one of the things that we were really keen to do is to think through then, how do you construct a network of meaning that is multi-directional, multi-actor, so allows for this huge richness that you can find when you start to look at German in a more historical uh, way, um, but it nevertheless coheres around the shared characteristic of being in some way German, even as it runs through and beyond any essential or exclusive notion of Germanness that we might think of in a more kind of modern nation state kind of way. Uh, and the first chapter in the volume, Elizabeth Anderson's, um, which you can just scroll to the top of the screen to see that, um, it, it really gives it a flavour of this. So she brings out the fact that low German, um, because of the importance of the Hanseatic trade routes, low German is um, a, a kind of lingua franca in the way that Latin is. And she traces how different forms of culture, material culture and literary culture translate back and forth between low German, high German, Latin and bring in influences from uh, France mm. uh, and, and other neighboring countries in a way that, you know, one might think is really that kind of transcultural exchange. We might think is a very kind of contemporary phenomenon and she shows just how um, how far back it goes and gives a really interesting new angle on what German is in the process and so linguistically looking at low German. So we were really keen that the volume would open up new perspectives on, on what studying German means for anybody. Uh, we wanted to give our students and indeed other disciplinary readers who were lured in um, something that would give them and not only a much bigger world than they might have been expecting, and people do tend to think just German, it's World War II and, and what follows, um, but also a number of different worlds to give them alternative ways of being and shape their sense of how they in turn might orient themselves in the world. I know we could bookend, if you're just looking through the table of contents, we're at the bottom there with Stuart's chapter, um, uh, he actually relativizes national identity by looking into the future um, and deals particularly with thinking about some of the issues that Anne was raising actually. Um, so when, when questions of German identity have been rather relativized by questions of planetary identity and a sort of a the, the threat to uh, the, the end of the Anthropocene as it were. Um, okay, so this leads me to the first provocation I wanted to make, which is that uh, thinking about what we learned from that is that we should always locate ourselves across time, but in relation to our time. So the humanities are trying um, to somehow allow for the huge richness of our, our fields of study, not get bogged down in particular areas and lose sight of the bigger picture. But we do also then have to relate it to our time because that is where a lot of people's interest actually lies. And I would say this provocation points us to thinking not just about the critical humanities and, and critique, which I think we're all schooled in, but the confident humanities. It takes confidence to believe um, that you're able to do this and to join up all the dots in meaningful ways. So there's a real need for humanities scholarship to be bold enough to take this big sweep across large timeframes um, without fearing the loss of specificity or detail. And um, that's obviously a challenge. So second point, second lens, the transnational as translational. Um, 
one of the second real things that we wanted to achieve with this volume is to put it across in accessible language. In that sense, be translational, have your work and your study be, speak to all sorts of other people. And that raises the question as to how much complexity is needed for a subject to be opened up to further inquiry um, as you know, a postgraduate student in German might then take up. So we want to obviously put some ideas out there that are going to really feel rich and uh, fecund for, 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 for engaging with. Um, but we also want to encourage fruitful comparisons that take the whole subject itself to other places so that, so that a researcher in a cognate discipline will be able to, to do something with it. And that also requires not putting too much detail and complexity in because then it becomes off-putting. A criticism made of humanities scholarship since the high theory years of the late 20th century has been its tendency towards jargon and hermeticism. And we, were, we really wanted to avoid that whilst remaining very alert to the nuances of language, space, time and subjectivity. Those are the four parts we were given to work with that have been the focus of those identity politics um, and the related linguistic, spatial and temporal terms. So this is another kind of juggling act. How can we put together a volume that feels like it's really doing justice to the richness and complexity of the subject, but at the same time um, is accessible to people coming in at all entry levels and from various different disciplinary standpoints. And I point in that context to um, Angus Nichols' chapter on Freud, uh, which gives a sense of how one can be translational by literally looking at translation. So he looks at how Freud has been translated um, in the early years from German to English. And what happened it, when, when those translations were undertaken, uh, Freud's quite literary language, and so in that sense, kind of quite artistic language, becomes quite medicalized in the translations in English and sort of knocks him into a rather different field, in fact, to the one that he was perhaps drawing on when he was establishing his ideas. And those English translations have been massively influential for what we think Freud, Freudian research and Freudian scholarship is all about. Um, so it was sort of himself both making Freud uh, available to people from other disciplines and making the, the, ma the matter of translation um, visible to, to scholars in you know, the, the medical side of, uh, of campus, if you like, um, and also perhaps critiquing uh, some, of the, some of the slippages that can happen. As part of opening up what modern languages scholarship is and, and who it speaks to, we also felt really strongly the importance of giving space to collaborators from other parts of the world. So we still actually found ourselves asking at one point, should we be transnationalizing our contributors? And we thought uh, on balance, yes, we should, um, because they have important insights um, from, their, from where they stand on what German studies is and they bring other ways of, of doing things, including just at a very basic level kind of Ways of ways of presenting a scholarly argument. Uh, so uh, we might not be as, as transnational as we'd like to be, but we made a, we made a real effort to, to go in the right direction. We got a scholar from France, Dirk Weissmann. My sounds a bit German, but he's actually French. Um, and you might think that's not really going very far away from Germany and being very ambitious, um, but there is quite a difference actually. And I was quite struck by the fact that the scholarship that happens in the Romance languages on German stuff, I think is largely invisible to the people in the English speaking world. And that's, that's a huge um, pity and, and, and waste. Uh, so he, he'd written a really insightful chapter, in fact, on people writing in German as a second language. And we had Paulo Soto from Brazil, who I met through a Humboldt network. 
um, giving a, a really interesting insight into um, archives of ger German language newspapers in the Americas and the, the challenges of trying to keep those accessible um, today and what they show about 19th century patterns of movement. Um, and just to kind of mention in passing some of the challenges that this throws up, we had a contributor from India who we were really excited to have on board, who we thought was going to bring a fantastic sort of Indian take on East-West relations, which was very different to, to what we were able to, go, to, to, to give through our, our own networks. Um, and he had to drop out because of climate change. It seems quite important to, to, to mention that in, in this context, that he... Um, that the air pollution had got so bad when his chapter was due he simply wasn't able to work and these are some of the things we don't generally talk about when we're sort of theorizing transnational humanities but there are some really important practical um, ramifications to think through if we genuinely want to be connected up in different ways and bringing in different viewpoints um, it, it, it causes challenges for how we work um, and the kind of time frames we're working to and what we expect as a sort of a standard scholarly piece so my second provocation then is that how we say things must, almost, must always go right through what we say. So in that sense, transnational, methodologically, we have to really own it um, and it has to inform the way that we're setting out what we're doing, whether it's using more accessible language or being ourselves more accessible and putting together uh, more inclusive networks. That seems it's like it's really got to be a pillar of the transnational humanities. So this points to not getting stuck in your own nationally bounded networks and um, somewhat self-perpetuating vocabulary, perhaps. Perpetuating the discipline means communicating it in such a way that it has the core ability to go beyond itself, in that sense, transnational goes beyond the nation, and to carry on moving through time and into different worlds and communities, and indeed to be inflected by other, diff other, other takes on, uh, from different worlds and communities. So I'm, I'm conscious of time. How much longer do you want me to, to talk for, Anna? Two minutes. Brilliant. That brings me to my third provocation, transnational as transdisciplinary. We wanted the book to point forwards to new ways of doing things. Often handbooks um, are a little bit kind of summative and they sort of say this is, this is where we've got to so far and they, they don't feel very cutting edge. Um, the whole series is trying to change the way we think about where modern languages sits in universities. Um, so we wanted to point to new ways of doing things, including re explicit reflections on methodology um, that are both core. So I think everybody uh, in modern languages would see philology, archive work, close textual analysis as core to the discipline. And we've got lots and lots of examples of those, but also sort of outlier methodologies. And um, in particular, we've got a bit of a cluster of expertise around social network analysis and actor network theory. Quite a few of the chapters reference that. Um, so when you start to take on different methodologies and take them seriously and engage with them in their own terms rather than just kind of cherry picking some, 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 teach, some, some, some terms, um, sometimes this can include shifting the gaze away from humans and the qualitative traces they leave of their cultural endeavours. And I think that has really been the homeland of, of humanities research has obviously been humans and thinking about uh, the qualitative traces of, of culture. But to shift the gaze away from that um, 
and, and, and prioritise other things. We've already heard this morning about post-humanism and material culture in some ways, but just to really push that a bit more. Sometimes the methodologies needed for this, they're not a clever conceptual move. They can be quite mechanistic. And Sarah Jones's chapter just takes the reader really simply by the hand to show how you use computer software um, to do social network analysis in order to understand from a different perspective, to use a different way in to looking at how different um, museums and bodies tasked with remembering or creating German um, goodness somebody's ringing me on my watch <laughs> go away um, uh, sorry so she uses social network analysis and she talks she talks really through how that works how you run the computer program and it's quite mechanistic um, the interest and value in this is in the different kinds of questions that it allows us to ask so that brings me to my third provocation. I'm gonna stop with just three. The humanities need to show humility and be alert to learning from other ways of doing things. That sometimes the methods that you need to engage with are not necessarily sort of uh, amazingly exciting new theories, but they can really help you ask different questions in a different way. Um, so this points to don't shun simple methods, uh, reflect on what the learnable techniques are that are germane to the humanities but which other disciplines could take up and that's been a real sort of guiding thing that we tried to bring out what are the, what are the methods that we use in our work that are actually quite simple and can we put them simply rather than making them complicated and what are methods that are used in other disciplines that you know are simple enough for us to be able to take and work with and in a creative way to bring about um, new forms of knowledge and, and open things up to people in new ways. Um, so I'm going to stop there. Only three provocations, I'm afraid, but hopefully that's given us food for thought. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Rebecca, for uh, kind of analysing the methodological, methodological scaffolding underpinning this, this, this volume and, and addressing some of the, yeah, the issues that, you know, that come with this, this, this territory. Uh, um, now, you can, of course, mention your fourth provocation in the conversation, yeah? Can so, I uh, invite some, some uh, um, comments and, and questions? Um, I will start then, while others, you know, as you know, we, we, we all have our thinking hats on. And so um, I'll return your provocation and say, um, what's new about this? Haven't we been doing this type of transdisciplinary work for a long time? I grew up with it. I would say uh, I was trained by the recep by reception theory in the 1980s, and I've been engaging with these kind of questions since my undergraduate years. So is the transnational just a label? Or to what extent does it really mean a new methodology that is not just interdisciplinary? So that's my provocation, returning it to you. Mm. It's always dangerous, isn't it, to claim you're doing anything new ever. I mean, <laughs> it's dangerous to claim you're ever writing about anything new if you're an author as well. Uh, and I think it, one, one needs healthy skepticism to, 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 uh, to the terminology. And indeed, as I said, Ben and I didn't start out loving the idea of the transnational. We, we, we started out by thinking, well, what can we make it do for us? Um, I guess if I was trying to say what I think is not perhaps new about it, but, but timely about using the term transnational is that it does flag up um, 
a, a desire to think economically and politically. I mean, at some level, transnationalism, I think, is, is surely aligned to uh, a, a political and an economic take on the world that we live in at the moment. And in, in taking this idea of the transnational and then um, bringing a humanities lens to it, we're trying to ask ourselves, how do the humanities contribute to that debate? And I think perhaps in earlier decades, um, that wasn't something that, 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 human, that humanity scholarship felt it had to do. It was, it was quite happy to, to, to look back and to look at the past and to open things out on its own terms. And I suppose, um, so it's, it's more about a sort of a conscious sense of humanity scholarship is an important part of these current debates and it brings a, a, an important perspective to current debates that, that are really shaping the economic and political form of the world and humanities that's why i'm saying we need the confident humanities that it's not new to us and you know people shouldn't feel kind of like they have to learn a whole new approach in many ways we've been doing most of this anyway but it hasn't been joined up and it hasn't had that same sense of purpose so that's what the term gives us i think Okay, great. Uh, Gillian has a question. I'll read it out. Um, thanks, Rebecca. Great paper. Just a practical question. Can you say something about how this has changed your curriculum and the way you approach teaching? Mm, yeah, lovely. That's, that's a really lovely question. And that is the aspiration behind the whole series is that it will actually allow for a different way of thinking about modern languages um, across the different subjects. Um, so it's changed my teaching and as much as I've already now got a transnational uh, component in our second, in our core, core course for second years um, and it's given me a framework for talking about lots of related things, um, migration and how it's played out um, across different periods. So I, this year I taught it and we, we looked at um, Heinrich Heine as much as looking at Thomas um, Gardy and you know the very contemporary stuff and encouraged the students to look across the period. So this trans period that I was telling you, um, we've got in, in the little mini module, we found a way of getting students to do something that's you know comparatively old from their point of view and something that feels very contemporary and look about what's the same and what's different. Um, so it's really helpful for um, getting those points across quite succinctly because you're always under pressure in the curriculum that you can't teach all the things you want and you know you can only get them to do little bits and pieces here and there but it's been a really helpful way of um, making it feel relevant for students um, but, make, but opening up the older literatures as well. Okay thank you. Can I invite one other question please? Yes Enrica you can unmute yourself. I was about to, I was about to um, write it, but like it will take a shorter time if I just say it. Um, so, are there any hidden dangers in this uh, transnationalizing the curriculum uh, as they are possibly in decolonizing it? I didn't hear the last bit. Sorry, as the as and possibly in decolonizing the curriculum. You know, are there any hidden dangers in this? You know, like that we are leave aside. You know, like um, aspects. You know, like of our curriculum that, uh, and so, so you know, this is uh, something that is kind of cyclical. You know, like we uh, value certain aspects of our uh, national heritage, of our culture, of transnational culture, and we leave others aside. That's just just to know your view on this. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I have a ready answer as to whether there are 
any obvious dangers. It, it feels like it's a really positive way to, to think about the discipline, to sort of to keep asking ourselves, how does it relate to everything else that people might be thinking and how can the wider world, you know, how, do, how can we use that to change what we're interested in when we think about German studies that feels positive but there is a, there was a sort of a fundamental paradox that we were slightly worried that we were putting together a textbook where we were saying all the really interesting stuff is not in Germany um, for, a, for a subject that feels constantly under threat we thought that's a slightly peculiar message to be given to be sending out um, that, that somehow, you know, being German isn't enough. <laughs> um, so that's, that was kind of something, and it's perhaps particularly the case in the German volume where, where yeah, you are a little bit on the back foot that uh, you, do, you don't have quite the right kudos for, for attracting students anymore. Um, but I feel that that's something that we were able to sort of, we were able to, to balance that, right? So yeah, but I'll be interested to see you. I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll be tripped up somewhere. <laughs> Okay, um, and we have one more comment here from Britta. Uh, Britta is, is not asking a question, but I'll re read it out. Uh, going back to my question and your answer, I think also that by consciously using the term transnational, we break the normativity associated to some of the issues empowering other voices. And of course, that is uh, intrinsically true, and I would agree with that. Um, however, I think perhaps one issue that remains for me is you know, the question of competency, mm -hmm. especially when we teach our subjects, there has to be a core competency which involves the mastery of the language and close critical reading. And it, it's quite a challenge to do all these things. I'm just putting this out there for all of us who are deeply involved with undergraduate students, yeah, that it's actually, it's not easy. It's not easy to deliver on the transnational curriculum. Mm -hmm to be pursued another time. <laughs> Although I suppose maybe as a final remark, I would, I really think one should never underestimate one's students. And you know, I've been seeing that they come and they bring so much themselves oh. to the classroom. If you can find a way of making them believe what they already know and you know, other ways of doing things they've got, whether it's from school or from another part of their joint degree, um, sometimes it can be feel really empowering for them to believe that they're shaping it with you. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, we are looking forward to the publication of the volume and um, uh, your own uh, contributions, of course, uh, in, this, in this field. Uh, Rebecca, thank you very much for, for revealing the challenges and debating the challenges and the opportunities that come with uh, this new way of approaching our diverse subject areas from a transnational perspective. So thanks very much. And I hope you can stay on for uh, some of the other uh, papers. So thanks very much.